Hi everyone, I'm Lisa. Welcome to the Spring Cairo podcast. Today I am looking at how our gut, our digestive system works. I touched very briefly last week on the bacteria in your gut. Uh, the bacteria in your gut is a very trendy topic. It's a big talking point at the moment and there are very good reasons for that. Uh, we can go back two and a half thousand years actually to Hippocrates who said all disease begins in the gut. But in modern times, we are just starting to really appreciate that our gut bacteria are more important than we've ever realized before. And scientists are showing more and more just what they're involved in. That's not just restricted to gut function, by the way. You learned last time that they directly affect brain function by affecting the production of BDNF. They also change how you deal with stress. So how your body emotionally and physically responds to stressful situations is affected by the balance of bacteria in your gut. But I'm jumping ahead of myself because, as ever, I'd like to start right at the beginning so that you understand the basics first. So your gut is effectively a long tube all coiled up inside of you. You put food in at one end of the tube via your mouth. It works its way through your body, through the whole tube, that consists of the stomach, the small intestine, then the large intestine, all the way out to the other end. And if you were to straighten the tube out, that journey would measure about 15 metres in total. And the food works its way through largely thanks to muscle contractions. When I covered muscles previously, I briefly mentioned that the gut is made of smooth muscle. So this is a type of muscle that's not under our voluntary or our conscious control, but it's controlled by the involuntary nervous system. And it's the muscles contracting and moving the food along that often makes a noise. So it makes our tummies rumble, either sometimes because there's no food in there or because there's lots of food if you've just eaten. My second favourite word in medicine after homunculus is the name given to the noise that your tummy makes. There is a medical name for it. <laughs> it's called borborygmus, or plural is borborygmi. I've been waiting for years for that to come up on a pub quiz. <laughs> no luck so far. Actually, by the way, there should always be sounds coming from your gut. So we're not always aware of them because they're not always loud enough to hear from the outside. But if a doctor listens to your abdomen, abdomen with a stethoscope, they should hear sounds. If there are no sounds, that's really not a good sign. So the pile of food you've eaten makes its way through the tube. Your body extracts all of the nutrients that it needs from the food. And then what's left comes out the other end with a few bits and pieces of waste products added as well. And the nutrients that are extracted from the food material in that tube now need to get out into your bloodstream so it can be carried around to your body to all of your cells. Our cells need all of those essential nutrients, whether it's just to do their basic assigned job in life, um, whether it's to repair damage or to make new cells and so on. But in order to get the food out into your bloodstream, your gut first has to break it down into smaller bits because there's a barrier between your gut, that tube, and your bloodstream. And the wall of the small intestine in particular, because that's where most of the nutrients get absorbed into your bloodstream, you can imagine that that wall as a very fine sieve. Think of the finest sieve you have, one that you'd use to sprinkle icing sugar on a cake, for example. And the food can only get through those tiny spaces in the intestinal wall once it's been broken up into small enough pieces. Imagine putting a lump of bread into your sieve. There's no way that's going through it easily. Another way I like to think about it is to imagine that the food you're eating is a massive pile of microscopic beaded necklaces. They're all tangled together and there are loads of them. And there are three main types of beads that make up the necklaces. So there's a black necklace, black grey necklace, let's say, made of 
black beads, charcoal beads, mid-grey beads, pale grey, basically around 20 different shades of black or grey that make up that necklace. Then there are white beaded necklaces. There are much fewer shades of white, obviously, so we've got a bright white. We might have an off-white and a magnolia, just a handful of, of different shades of white. And then there are blue necklaces. These are made of loads of different blue shades, from royal blue to turquoise, baby blue, you name it, lots and lots and lots of different blues. And the necklaces might all be different lengths, and many of them also have little embellishments. They might have little crystals or charms of different types and shapes interspersed amongst all the beads. Some of the necklaces are threaded together with a very thin cotton thread, some might be bound together with wire, and some with string. But it's only when the necklaces have all been broken up into the individual beads and crystals that make them up that they are then small enough to fit through the holes in the sieve. So it's the gut's job to cut all of the threads, the string, the wire, whatever it might be, between the beads and break them down into their simplest form. And in my analogy, the black necklace is protein. The individual black and grey beads that make up the necklace are called amino acids, of which there are around 20 to 22. And the white necklace is a carbohydrate. And the individual beads that make up the necklace are simple sugars, most commonly glucose. That's the bright white one. That's the most numerous one. And the blue necklaces are fats. The individual beads that make up the blue necklace are called fatty acids. And there are lots of different ones. I mentioned these briefly last time as well. So we would say that the bead necklaces themselves are called the macronutrients. Macro means large. And we need a lot of all of these for our bodies to function, the proteins, the carbohydrates, the fats. And the other various embellishments, the little crystals of all different colours and shapes, these represent other nutrients we need in our diet, which are the various vitamins and minerals. And we usually need these in smaller quantities, so we call these the micronutrients. And the way that these necklaces get broken down is in several ways. Firstly, mechanically, the churning, the movement of that smooth muscle helps to start to break them apart a little bit. Think about if you had a handful of necklaces in your hands and you rubbed them all together between your hands. Some of them would break. Then there are chemicals produced in our body in our digestive system called our digestive enzymes. And these are like lots of teeny tiny microscopic scissors that are released into your gut to cut the threads or the wires between all of those beads. And there are lots of different enzymes. Each are specific for different types of food. So there are specific enzymes for protein, for carbohydrate, for fat. There are also some specific chemicals produced in our gut that help to deal with certain vitamins and minerals too. For example, your liver produces bile. That helps to digest fats and certain vitamins. And bile is what's stored in the gallbladder, ready for action for when it's needed. But in amongst all the food and the various enzymes and all these chemicals are also the bugs that live in our gut. This is our microbiome. And this consists of trillions of microbes, microscopic organisms, mostly bacteria. You've got a certain amount of these in your mouth as well. Your mouth has its own little microbiome. And when everything is as it should be, these are beneficial to us. In fact, they are essential to us and they form a community in our bodies that affects many aspects of our health, including how our immune system works. But how it does this and where the bacteria came from, how they got into your gut, what happens when things go wrong, all of that is a subject for a whole other episode in the future. So I'm going to leave the microbiome for now and carry on with digestion itself. Because when everything has been broken down into small enough units, 
it can fit through the sieve to get out into your body where it's needed. At least that's how things should work in your gut. Now, there is a specific aspect of the breakdown of food in the gut that's come up for me recently in clinic, as I've had similar discussions with about three or four different patients over the past couple of weeks. And these were all diabetic or pre-diabetic patients. So I would like to focus on the breakdown of the white necklaces in particular, the carbohydrates, because I think this is so important to understand. And there is quite a bit of confusion around about it all, it seems. So the individual bright white beads that I talked about are glucose molecules. And the levels of glucose in your blood in particular is something that needs to be very finely controlled. Your body cannot have the levels getting either too high or too low. Both of those are, are very dangerous. When you've eaten something that's broken down in the gut into lots of beads of glucose, those pure white beads of glucose, they go out through the sieve into your bloodstream and your blood glucose levels rise. In response to this, your body releases a hormone called insulin from your pancreas. Insulin's job is to travel around your body and knock on all the doors of all your cells all around your body and say, hey, we've just had a fresh delivery of glucose. Will you take some in, please? And it will usher some glucose into the cells. And the insulin gets the blood glucose levels back down to their normal range level where they should be by basically shipping it out into your cells, some of it. If the cells are full and they can't take any more, your liver acts as a convenient storage warehouse and it will take in any of the extra glucose that might be left over. And this is really important because high levels of glucose in the bloodstream is not good news at all, especially if it's over a prolonged period. And it can, I mean, you name it, it can cause it. Nerve damage, kidney damage, retinal damage in the eyes, heart attacks. It weakens your immune system causes poor blood flow. So wounds can't heal, for example. They might not heal properly or they take a long time to heal. Sometimes that can even lead to having a limb amputated. But your blood glucose level can also do the opposite and it can go too low. Maybe if you haven't eaten anything for a while or you've been fasting, for example. And this is also potentially damaging and dangerous because glucose is the fuel used by your cells to do everything. So a constant supply is needed, which is why it's always in the bloodstream. And it's really important it doesn't drop too low but below the threshold that's essential. It's particularly important for your brain. Remember, you've already learned that your brain takes up 20% of your body's energy production. And to do that, it needs a constant supply of glucose and, and oxygen, actually. So low blood glucose levels in the short term can make some people feel a bit shaky or hangry, certainly makes you feel hungry and particularly often hungry for something sugary. So for that quick sugar hit, you might feel weak, dizzy, you might get a headache. But if the levels are low enough and severely low enough for long enough, it can actually be a life-threatening situation. It can cause seizures, passing out, even death. So when your blood glucose levels drop to below the ideal, your pancreas releases a different hormone called glucagon. And this does the opposite to insulin. So this tells the liver to release some of that stored glucose back into the bloodstream to bring the levels back up a bit. And normally our blood sugar levels should fluctuate a little bit. They go up a bit after eating, some insulin's released, they go back down a bit. They might drop a bit lower, so glucagon's released, then it goes back up again. But it stays or it should stay within two finely controlled levels. But picture a gentle wave, you know, gently rolling hills. They're just gently going up and down, not too steep. 
But when we eat something like granulated sugar, for example, that has lots of the pure white beads, the glucose in it, virtually in the simplest form possible, then it's a different story. So for example, table sugar, you know, a teaspoon of sugar in your tea, that doesn't consist of a bead necklace. That just consists of pairs of beads, one pure white glucose bead and one slightly off-white fructose bead that are linked by a pretty fine weak thread. So it doesn't take much at all for the gut to break them apart and end up with individual beads. Lots of glucose is then extracted very quickly and it gets out into the bloodstream very quickly. And this is what you might have heard referred to um, in terms of glycemic index or glycemic load. This basically means or refers to how much glucose is in a food and how quickly does it take to get it down to the individual beads that can then pass through the sieve. Because when a huge amount of glucose comes into the bloodstream all at once, your body panics a bit and says, whoa, we need a lot of insulin to deal with all of this. So there's a big shot of insulin that gets released. And that does its job. But then the blood sugar levels or the blood glucose levels then drop too quickly and too far. Then it's not too long before you feel hungry again and you want something sugary to increase the levels quickly. And it goes on back and forth. So now instead of our lovely gentle rolling hills, it's more like the Himalayas. You've got big, steep, sharp peaks and really low, abruptly low valleys. For your body, it's literally like being on a roller coaster and your blood sugar levels are spending more time either too low or too high rather than at that sweet spot in the middle. And it's not much fun being in this state. I had many years before I knew better of, of having out of control blood sugar levels and I would get very shaky, very uncomfortable when I was hungry and my level, I couldn't concentrate. It affects brain function, obviously, all sorts of things like that. This is not a pleasant, comfortable place to be. Um, until I got my blood sugar levels under until I realized what the problem was actually. So if you keep having to release lots of insulin because you're eating high sugar things in your food, lots of insulin has to keep going around, knocking on all the doors, asking your cells to take some glucose in. After a while, the cells get pretty fed up. There's just been this constant banging on the door. They're sick of having to get up and answer this door all the time. And they just start to ignore it. This is effectively type 2 diabetes, which is why it's something that normally develops over time and later in life. You have basically annoyed your cells so much with the incessant banging on the door, they've put the do not disturb sign on the doorknob. They're not having it anymore. They are not going to help take that glucose out of your bloodstream. Type 1 diabetes, by the way, is something slightly different. There's a different scenario that's usually something that appears earlier in life. And it's basically when the cells of your pancreas are damaged in some way, so they have difficulty actually producing insulin at all, which is why type 1 diabetics often have to inject insulin. Now, I'm going to do a bit of research for myself here because I've been a bit alarmed recently. I've heard of quite a few people having type 1 diabetes diagnosed at a much older age, which is really unusual. Um, but I've heard of a few now, and I'm not sure what's happening there. But anyway, in an ideal world, we want to keep our blood sugar levels fairly tightly controlled, not only to avoid diabetes, but all sorts of other health complications. And all carbohydrates will raise your blood sugar levels. But the important thing, the important take home thing here for you is to know how quickly they'll do it. Obviously, eating things made with lots of simple refined sugar is not that great for that reason. But eating things that are made from beads of glucose linked together very weakly is not great either. 
And this is where some of the discussions I've had recently have, have made me realize that people don't always realize what other things, apart from obviously sugary things, might affect your blood sugar levels. It might surprise you, for example, to learn that eating a piece of white bread is not far off just eating a few teaspoons of sugar directly because it doesn't take much time or effort at all for your gut to break the white bread down into glucose. This is where what are called more complex carbohydrates are better for your blood sugar levels. These are effectively longer bead necklaces that are held together with wire rather than thread. So they take a bit more effort and a bit more time for your digestive system to work their way through them and to break them down. So the glucose beads gradually work their way through the sieve slowly rather than all being dumped through all at once in one go. This is why brown rice is better than white rice. Likewise, brown or whole wheat pasta compared to white pasta, anything whole grain compared to white. They generally have lower GI and GL levels, which means they are released more slowly and gradually. Another one that surprises people refers to smoothies. Smoothies, they're great. They've been popular for many years as a very quick and tasty way to get a variety of different fruits into you. That's all good, isn't it? We're told we should eat the rainbow, get all the different nutrients we need. But when it comes to blood sugar, a smoothie with, I don't know, banana, selection of different berries, for example, might be very yummy, but it actually causes a big spike in insulin release. And the blender's already done half the work, basically. It's broken the fruit down to some extent. You're actually better off eating an apple rather than pulping it and getting the apple juice out of it, for example. So when it comes to smoothies like that, you want to slow the release of the glucose down into your bloodstream. One way of doing that is to add proteins and fats to it. Within a meal, it's the balance in terms of protein, fat and carbohydrates that's very important. A pure carbohydrate meal will release very quickly and affect your blood sugar levels very quickly. But the same amount of carbohydrate in the same form, if you've also eaten protein and fat with it, will release more slowly. So just think about the ratio of things on your plate. You know, if, make sure that it's not the carbs, or especially if it's refined carbs like white rice, pasta, potatoes. Uh, think about increasing the protein and fats in relation to that. Breakfast is a key player for this. You know, having a piece of toast with some jam on it for breakfast is effectively all sugar. As far as your body's concerned, you've just raised your blood sugar levels hugely very quickly. Most prepared breakfast cereals, unfortunately, are pretty much sugar and they break down very quickly. But if you have a piece of toast with a bit of butter on it, remember what I talked about last time, butter rather than margarine, we don't want trans fats, a bit of butter and a bit of a nut butter, a peanut butter, for example, lots of protein and fat in there. That same piece of toast with a bit of butter and a bit of peanut butter on top of it will be much more slowly released. So it will help you feel full for longer as well. Blood sugar levels that are not being well controlled can also affect your sleep, by the way. If you have something really sugary later in the evening, as you now know, your blood sugar levels will go high, your body will release insulin, and then your blood sugar levels will plummet. And that might be a couple of hours later when you're fast asleep. And as well as glucagon, low blood sugar levels also trigger the release of adrenaline. So this is when you suddenly wake up during the night. You might even notice your heart's beating quite fast. You wake up quite suddenly and there is no chance of getting back to sleep at that point. 
And that's due to the adrenaline, the little shot of adrenaline that was needed to help your body deal with the low blood sugar levels. So if you have a tendency to wake up at a certain time in the night and find it difficult to get back to sleep, I'd I'd take a look at how well controlled your blood sugar levels are. And you can do this for yourself. Anyone can now buy the little patches that monitor your blood sugar levels. They're like little plasters that you put on your arm, linked to an app. It measures it. You can see how steep your roller coaster is. Is it a very gentle children's roller coaster going up and down very gently, or is it a massive um, high peaks and troughs type of roller coaster? It's worth doing. If you think blood sugar levels are an issue for you, uh, even if you're not, certainly if you've been diagnosed as pre-diabetic, another name for that, by the way, is metabolic syndrome or syndrome X. All of those refer to the same thing. And all of that is reversible. You can reverse that if you look at your blood sugar levels and keep them under better control. So that was your introduction to how your gut works and why it's important to break things down in your gut and a look also at the importance of keeping your blood sugar levels fairly stable. In future, I mentioned I will talk to you about your microbiome. I'm also going to talk to you at some stage about the sieve in your gut, because sometimes the sieve can be become a bit more of a colander rather than a fine sieve. We call this leaky gut syndrome, and that has huge health implications. So again, I'll be covering that in another episode. Right at the beginning, I talked to you about your bucket of health and keeping your blood sugar level stable is definitely one of the things that will bail out your bucket and keep it from overflowing. But for now, I'm going to take a break from the podcast for a little while. Um, this is episode number 10. Season one is finished. If you've been listening and been enjoying it, please do let me know next time you're in clinic. If there's something you'd like me to cover, and in particular for the second season, then please let me know. In the meantime, I am wishing you all health and happiness. Take care. <music>